Hey there, this is Larry, and I'm here with Armin. You're about to listen to a great episode. But before you do, we want to let you know that we're now podcasting over at the Bold Idea Podcast. That's right, and we're not adding any new episodes to Reinventure Me, but we think you're really going to like what we're doing on the Bold Idea Podcast. We're interviewing some great guests and packing ideas and inspiration to help you put your faith to work to bring your idea to life. So when you're done with this episode, go check it out at boldideapodcast.com. Episode 68 of the Reinventure Me Podcast. Well, do you have a book in you? We're going to talk to Dr. Dennis Hensley, a master of professional writing, about whether it's time for you to launch your writing career on this episode of Reinventure Me. Find your next great beginning. Welcome to the Reinventure Me Podcast. With your hosts, Larry Gates and Armin Asadi. Well, hello and welcome to episode 68 of the Reinventure Me podcast. This is your host, Larry Gates, and I am not here with my co-host, Armin Asadi. And that is because Armin is off this week celebrating the birth of his new baby girl. Just a tremendous time for him and his family, and we wish them the best and congratulate him on what a tremendous achievement. I know he is a proud papa. We'll get him on the air here soon and share with us some of his early childhood experiences of being a new dad, but we want to just tell you that Armin's baby is here. That's exciting news. Welcome to episode 68. This is the podcast for what's next in life, and we're here to help you discover the ways to reinvent your life, your opportunities, adventures God's called you into. We are just so privileged today, and I want to get right into this because a lot of us are wondering, is it time to launch a writing career? And I'm really delighted to have a special guest on the show with me today. He's a man who I've gotten to know over the last five or six, maybe it's been a little longer than that, but a tremendous man, a very accomplished person in the writing area, but also a personal mentor of mine, Dr. Dennis Hensley, is the director of the professional writing department at Taylor University. And he will have published 60 books coming up this January, including uh, six novels, eight textbooks, and more than 150 short stories, 3,500 newspaper magazine articles. And he's the annual judge for the Evangelical Press Association and the Christie Fiction Awards. And he is my friend. Thank you, Doc, for joining us on this episode of Reinvention. Always a pleasure. Glad to be with you. Yeah. Now, you and I met a long time ago when my daughter was considering attending Taylor University. And right off the bat, I was impressed by how you engaged your students. And when we went shopping for colleges for Stephanie to attend, the thing that stood out was how you led the writing department there at Taylor University. You take a different approach than any place else that we visited. Can you talk about that for a second? Well, my idea is that too many people go through a creative writing program where they're doing some things that are kind of ethereal and they're not focused on having an impact as writers. They'll write their little poem and each one will read it and they'll kind of compliment each other or they'll do some kind of far out sort of short story, literary kind of thing. But the point is, what, how are you making a difference with readers? My program focuses on the idea of what do you want to say? Who are you targeting that market for? And what do you hope the result will be? 
And so if it's a testimony or if it's a motivational piece or it's an instructional piece of work, that's what editors are looking for. They want something of take-away value for their readers. So that's what I was stressing. This is how you get published. This is how you write professionally. And this is how you have an impact where your career means something by touching lives, educating people, informing them of things they didn't know before, challenging them to think in new ways. So my program has always been pragmatic. It isn't a bunch of theory or anything. It's the idea this is the way the real world of publishing works, and this is how you can step into it if you're willing to do the work. Well, you know, there was two things that sold us on your program, just to get this off the air here real quick. One is that when we sat around that first lunch we had with you guys, a number of your students were at that table. I guess there were probably about eight students there. I don't know if you remember this at all, but you had each of the students introduce themselves to my daughter and tell them what they were doing. And each one of them were published in some way. And that was just phenomenal. And that made a big difference. And then the other difference too, Doc, is how you took a specific interest in her. And I think you do that with every one of your students. And that really stands out. You're to be commended for this. So I'm really delighted to have you on this program to talk about, is this the right time to launch a writing career? Because there are probably so many people here in our audience that are wondering, uh, you know, if they should be doing that. But before we get into that topic, I always like to have an inspire me quote. And I'm wondering what's been an inspirational quote for you? I did my doctoral dissertation on American author Jack London, and one of the statements that he made has been a goal-setting, primary motivating factor for this, and this is what he said, I would rather be a superb meteor, every atom of me in magnificent glow, than a sleepy and permanent planet. The proper function of man is to live, not just exist. I shall not waste my days trying to prolong them. I shall use my time. Mm. And I like that because he lived that out. Jack London, unfortunately, died at the age of 40, but he became the first person in the history of the world to make a million dollars strictly from professional writing. And many of his books, The Call of the Wild, White Fang, The Sea Wolf, are still classics today, and people read the short stories to build a fire. And so I think that motivation of getting up and facing that white piece of paper and getting at it and writing, that's always been a great inspiration for me. Well, that's quite a metaphor, too, really, to think about yourself either as a sleepy planet or what kind of metaphor was it? Dude? Yeah, a superb meteor. Yeah, that's really quite neat. And I think a lot of us are little sleepy planets that need to be more of a meteor. And, you know, you've been doing a lot of work teaching and mentoring students. But talk about those who are maybe didn't start out pursuing writing as a career, but maybe they think they've got a book in them and they're considering that later in their years. Maybe they're in a job right now and they're wondering if that's something they should move into. What are some of the signs that you might know whether somebody is really ready for that or could be successful as a writer? I look for qualities, whether a person is in the 20s or in the 50s or whatever age group they are. First thing I ask them, if they enjoy reading, because I don't know very many successful writers who are not voracious readers. Mm. Most writers will say, oh, yes, I love to read all the time, and I love to read a wide variety of things. I read classic books. I read modern novels. I read newspapers and magazines. So they're voracious consumers of reading and writing materials, that, and they are familiar with the genres, the sort of things that are coming out there. And that's the first thing I ask. The second thing I look for is, are they disciplined? In other words, Are they the kind of people who want to play at something, or are they very serious about this? And that discipline will happen. I can recognize right away if I have a person in class 
and they ask excellent questions, and they come to me for advice on how to do revisions and rewrites because they want to master a craft and they want to get better at it. They don't take offense at being corrected, and that's what they came to school for. That's what they came to a writer's conference for. That's why they joined a writer's club. They want to learn how to do it, and so the sharper they can get at it, the better they are. So they're glad when you can give them feedback. It doesn't have to be necessarily totally positive, but the fact of the matter is it has to be something that will move them forward. So I love that kind of discipline, too. And the third thing I look for is if they're able to do self-study. In other words, I can teach them as much as I have time to do, and they can practice that. But the people who are really going to succeed are going to read the writer's magazines. They're going to read books on writing. They're going to try to attend workshops and seminars. They're going to do writing above and beyond any kind of assignment you give because they're eager. They're like a person who sits in front of a fire hydrant with a spoon. You just can't get it in fast enough. You're just taking that in. So those are the three qualities I look for, that enjoyment of reading, that discipline of being able to work at writing, and then the idea of self-study going beyond what just is a basic learning. They really are thirsty for knowledge. Yeah, those last two in particular kind of suggest this learning mindset, you know, as opposed to the fixed mindset, which we've talked about in earlier episodes, where you need to develop this attitude that you're not trying to prove yourself by what you're doing. You're trying to improve yourself by what you're doing. Is that what you're seeing in your students that are successful? You have to understand the sensitivity of people who want to turn to writing. I'm particularly talking about younger people, but all people like that. Part of my job is to encourage them because I find that a lot of people who are very, very interested in writing, they're not usually the glamour queens of high school or they weren't the top athletes of the summer programs or anything like that. They were far more introspective. They analyzed things. They thought about things. They were curious about things. They didn't mind being alone a lot of times, reading or studying, something like that. But they also have a great deal of sensitivity. So part of my job is to encourage them. I try to get them published very quickly, uh, whether it's review or small devotion or something like that, because when they see their names in print, that buoys their confidence, and they're thinking, wow, I can do that. Also, one of my jobs is to try to get them past the gatekeepers. Many editors know that so much amateur stuff comes in, they usually won't pay too much attention to it unless there's somebody who says, oh, let me recommend this. So I try to be that person. And once I can get the student through the gate and introduce that person to an editor or an agent, and the student proves himself or herself as a worthy writer, then that opens that door. They can do that. So part of it's motivation, it's encouragement, it's patting them on the back. Yes, there's a discipline. You have to correct the papers in that. But at the same time, I like to point out what's strong because I understand that the beginning writers are sensitive. They really, truly are. Yeah. I was surprised by some of the stats that I've found out there. There's one guy that suggests that 81% of Americans feel that they have a book in them. And that roughly equates to 200 million people who aspire to write. Yet, you know, (laughs) we don't have 200 million authors out there, I don't think. I don't know what the exact count is, but what are some of the reasons you think the interest is so high and yet the output is so low? Well, let me begin by telling you something hilarious that dovetails to what you just said. Many years ago, the humor columnist Irma Bombeck wrote a column about the time that she met a human being who was not writing a book or not (laughs) intending to do it. She said she was at a party, and she met this guy, and he was a stranger, and she didn't know what to say. So 
just a strike up conversation, she said, what is your book about? And he said, what are you talking about? She said, the book you're writing, what's it about? And he said, I'm not writing the book. She said, well, when you get around to writing your book, what's it going to be about? <laughs> he said, I have no intention of writing the book. And she said, this stunned me. She said, it stunned me because this had never happened before. So she said, I looked at the man and said, when did you first get this idea not to write a book? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was hilarious because everybody is either writing a book or going to write a book. Here's the thing about it, though. When you read a book that's well-written, it just seems like it could not have been written any other way. Uh -huh. So it seems obvious and direct and well-organized. But those of us who write books realize that was like the fifth draft. I had to read it out loud. I had to bounce some ideas off people. I had to go through my agent, my editor. I had to go back and rewrite it for myself over and over. And finally, you get it to that crystal point. And I mean, it might be 3 o'clock in the morning, you've been working on the thing five or six hours or something, finally finished one good chapter or something. They don't realize how much work goes into not just the initial draft, but the editing, the honing, the proofreading, bouncing it off other people to make sure that they understand that. That's a lot of work. It's an awful lot of work. And when people get into it, they say, oh, I don't know, man. I didn't think it was going to be this hard, this difficult. And then on top of that, you have to add in the fact that you have to be a master of certain skills. I mean, writing mechanics, how many people go back and say, oh, I don't remember, you know, about comma splices, and I don't run on sentences, and when to use the proper capital letters. Well, those things are part of the craft that you have to master, and that adds another dimension. So when people really do sit down and start to write, they realize this is a lot harder than I thought, because reading a book is not the same thing as writing a book. It's not like if I watched somebody perform brain surgery three or four times, I wouldn't say, hey, give me a crack at it now. You right, know? right. No, it's a lot of preparation before you get to that. I remember when I was a kid, I used to read Jules Bergman, the science commentator. You might remember him. And he wrote a book, Anyone Can oh. Fly. And when I was a kid, about 10 years old, I believed that. you know, And I kept reading this book about how to fly a Piper Tripacer, you know? And I remember believing, after uh -huh. reading that book about 15, 20 times, if I got in the cockpit of a Piper Tripacer, I could get that thing up in the air. <laughs> you know? And I think you're absolutely right. There's something about seeing something, especially if it's well done, masterfully done, that you think, well, I ought to be able to just do that. And that's probably accounts for a lot of the reason why people aspire to it and yet actually don't get through it. Well, that's true. And the other side of it is, though, there are people who will sit down and they will be very humble thinking, you know, let me see if I can try a short story or maybe I can write a first chapter. And they're pleasantly surprised that because of life experiences, they do have a lot of information to share. And that's when they'll come to people like me or they'll go to a writer's conference perhaps or read books and say, all right, I now know I have some content. I have some value to share. What I need are the skills that will get me in the right venue, the right format, and the right mechanics to do that. And they become very, very good students of writing because they are motivated to share what their life experiences are, what their special training is, and they can master the other skills. So I've got something inside of me that I want to get out. Maybe it's an experience that I had that might be beneficial to others, or maybe it's some skill that I want to share in some way, or just some perspective on the world that I'd like to get out there. What are some of the practical courses of action that somebody can take, maybe still retaining their current job, not leaving to pursue a writing career full-time, but what are some of the practical things that somebody can do while they're living out their day-to-day -day responsibilities? What are some of the successful strategies you've seen? I love that question because in the 21st century, we have more opportunities to follow those avenues than we ever had before. Let me just give you a couple of ideas. 
Prior to recent years, there was no such thing as online learning, where you could take college courses in creative writing or in literature or professional writing or journalism at your own pace. Now, Taylor University, for example, where I work, has an online division where I have a lot of courses. There's a whole one-year certificate of professional writing that people can take, and they can sign up for courses and say, I'd like to take the freelance magazine writing course. And it's a three-hour course, but they don't have to finish it in the traditional 15 weeks. They might take 20 or 25 weeks, but they go at it at their own pace. They learn. They get their material edited. They get to work with a professional writer and an editor and send it back. So online education which is available is a great thing. The other thing is there are things such as chat rooms and webinars where you can check in writing magazines and say, well, somebody's going to give a lecture on this subject and you can sign up for it and it's just a one-time thing. But for a full hour, you can learn about how do you put setting into your story and make it vivid or how do you handle dialogue. And people can sign up for those and say, man, that one hour, that was just like a crash course. I got a lot of good notes here. I didn't have to go to Colorado. I didn't have to go to New York. I could just be part of this by watching this or being involved interactively in the chat room. That's another idea. The other thing is that whereas the libraries always had good books for people to read about the craft of writing, now they're available as downloadable ebooks. People can just put them into their Nook or their Kindle, and they can mm-hmm. read those things and study them as time permits, weekends, holidays, after work, you know, those sort of things. So they've got access to things that even on their lunch hour they could be reading and putting together. Then on, on top of that, there are the things where they can actually put a commitment to. They could say, well, I want to join a writing group. And many times there'll be notifications in uh, the yellow pages or in the one ads where groups meet or libraries will know where writers' clubs are. And people can say, I'd like to join. They say, yeah, you're more than welcome. We're going to meet once a month, bring something that you've written, be ready to give feedback to other people. Or they can go to writers' conferences. They happen, they'll be three days long, four days long, sometimes even five days long. They're held in different states all over the country. You have a writers' yeah, conference yeah. coming up, right? Right, uh, that you're going to be at? Yeah, several. I'm being right to publish is the one that's in Wheaton, Illinois, from June 3rd through the 6th, and then I'll be at the She Speaks conference in North Carolina. That's at the end of July. That's a promotion of both people who want to speak and write. So those are opportunities too. So today, with online learning and downloadable books and writers' clubs and chat rooms and webinars, there's just every opportunity in the world to study writing. Mm-hmm. Now I got to meet one of my writing mentors, Ken Geyer because I saw him on a blog post and he was saying, hey, I'm going to open up a short course for anybody that's interested. And he's become a friend of mine as a consequence of just signing up for that. So that's another avenue. There are a lot of successful authors out there that are willing to just take some students at a short period of time under their wings and just take them through a program. Sure, sure. Let me ask you this question because I think I know your answer already, but is it too late to start? I mean, some of our listeners might be thinking, well, you know, this is fine. I could do it, you know, early on, but what do I need to do if I'm thinking about starting and I don't have all those skills and I don't think I have time to take in everything, what are some other avenues that I might be able to get started with? Well, first, let me give you a different perspective on that. What I enjoy is when I purposely teach a night course because I can have my traditional college students, 17 to 23-year-old students, but then I can get people who are ages 30 to, say, 65, and they'll come in. And it's a wonderful mixture because what you have is The young people have a lot of recent training in the mechanics of writing, the structure of writing, but the older people have real-life experiences. Mm -hmm. So one of my young students might read something out loud, a short story or an excerpt from a book that he or she has written, and the older person would say, you know, that's a really good 
well-written piece, but the problem is life doesn't really work that way. But conversely, the older person might read something, and here's something I wrote, and the younger person might say, well, let me give you feedback. I like the concept of your story, but the young teenager would never talk that way. That's not the kind of language. So they're able to give and take that way. So people who are older, they have things to draw from. They have memories, they have jobs, they have education, they have experiences, they have opportunities where they've purchased homes and where they've raised children and all these things. So they have a depth of knowledge that young people who might have the mechanical skills don't have. So I tell people, it's not too late. It's not too late to start. In fact, you've got a gold mine that you can cash in on. The other thing is don't pressure yourself. Mm. So what if you just sit down and you say, okay, I only, it took me three months and I finally finished a short story. Great. Enjoy it. Send it out. Start another one. What does it mean? You're not on any timetable. You're not on any pressure situation like that. Just enjoy it. Start and work as you want. Well, you know, that's a real encouragement to me because I know I've spent so much time trying to wrestle through all of my Irma Bombeck book ideas as well, you know, and I've always felt a sense of pressure to get something done and felt badly when I haven't been able to do so, you know, so that's really an encouragement to me. I agree with that because people who have tried it sometimes will say, you know, the momentum's there. I just wonder if it's too late for me. And it's never too late. The market's open for quality material. Very seldom will agents or editors come back and say, are you a minimum of 21 years old or are you a minimum of 50 years old? They just look at the quality of the material. Do you have some examples of some late bloomers in that way, some people who started their writing career a little bit later in life and ended up being quite successful with I, it? Yeah, I've, my own students, I think, were, are good examples, but also I have some personal friends. I have a friend named Dr. Brant Dodson, and he is a podiatrist. He's a foot surgeon, and after he'd finished medical school and he'd established his practice and he was in his 40s, he decided he wanted to use his forensic knowledge just for the fun of it to start writing crime novels, and he didn't succeed right off the bat. There were several of his novels that he wrote that just didn't work, and then I came in contact with him. I gave him some feedback. I connected him with a literary agent, and today he's got nine novels published. He's still a doctor. That's what his main job is, but he writes these crime and suspense novels that use a lot of his medical training, forensic training, And he enjoys it tremendously, but he didn't even get into the writing game until he was well into his 40s. Mm. So that can happen. Yeah, that's great. So if you're an aspiring author, what caution would you give? Well, the thing is, I wouldn't quit my day job. That's for sure. I don't tell people (laughs) to do anything like that. They say, you know, I'm going to quit my day job and I'm just going to dive into this. First of all, even if you were able to become successful pretty quickly, it takes a good year, year and a half before your book was ever going to come out because it has to go through cover design and proofreading and layout, format, advertising, promotion. And usually it wouldn't happen that fast. So you wouldn't want to do that. You wouldn't keep that. I would tell people, step into it a toe at a time, you know, just explore, do some reading, find out what genre turns you on. Do you like Westerns or do you like devotional writing or do you like real life experiences that you want to share? And explore that a little bit. Find some writing friends so where you can get some feedback. Now, there are ways to ease into it, but yeah, don't do anything dumb like just saying, I'm going to drop everything and turn into this famous writer. It's not going to happen. And a lot of times, people who are working writers still have another job. I mean, as much as I write, and you mentioned about you know how I wrote full-time for 14 years, but then I became a college professor to design this writing program. And so I write a lot during summers, Christmas break. And I do spend one day a week, Tuesdays, I don't teach every time of the semester. I just use that for writing so I can continue that. But I have another job. I'm a college professor. Mm -hmm. And many people are like that. They are writers. They're active writers. 
but they maintain another job. So I would tell people, be very cautious about jumping in too quickly. Yeah, now you mentioned the lead time on getting a book published. So that begs the $64,000 question. Self-publish or traditional publish? Well, today, self-publishing offers opportunities that are much better than the old vanity press that used to exist in the 50s and 60s and 70s, where people would just take your money and knock out any kind of a product and send you four or 500 copies of a book that they printed that you'd have to stack up in your garage. Today, with a platform building and online media and sources of distribution such as Amazon.com, even the self-published author has a chance to get out there. But, of course, that means the competition is very, very strong, too. So what I tell people, I say, if you're going to self-publish, you need to ask yourself a few questions. One, do you have avenues by which to market this? In other words, are you going out and giving speeches? Are you leading seminars? Are you giving uh, guest talks at uh, writers' conferences or, or at churches or at clubs or retreats where people would come and buy your book while you're there? The other thing is, do you have the time to be your own marketer? In other words, let's say you have a website and somebody orders your book. Let's say 10 or 12 people a day were ordering. Are you going to go down and wrap those books? Are you going to package them? Are you going to carry them to the post office and mail them? That's the thing that a lot of people don't think about. You know, that's a lot of extra time put on there. And the other part about it is, is what can you do to promote it? How will people know it's there? I mean, yeah, you might list it as being for sale, but if you're not on radio and TV talk shows, if you're not out there being interviewed in newspapers, you'll have to know how that part of the exposure element is. I spend a great deal of time appearing on talk shows because of the fact that that's part of the business of promoting the program I have at Taylor, but also myself as an author. So there's a lot of combinations of that. Yes, it's easy to get a book printed, but you shouldn't confuse being printed with being published. Mm. When a publisher comes along and says, this is a high-quality product, we can promote it, we can distribute it, we can get it in bookstores, we can help publicize it, that takes a lot of pressure off the author so the author can continue to write. But when the self-publisher comes in and you say, okay, I'm going to write it, I'm going to publish it, I'm going to promote it, I'm going to mail it out and send it, I'm going to keep all the books on it, that's a lot of extra work. So people need to know what they're getting into. Now, if somebody says, well, I'm going to do my family history. I want to do 100 copies. I want to give it to my family and friends. I say, hey, that's a great idea. That's fantastic. And this way you can do it. But if somebody thinks that the people in the world are going to buy your family history, you're a little bit naive on that. (laughs) Well, and self-publishing is probably a good option for very niche and small markets like that. But it seems like the traditional publishing is a good route to go if you want to test the quality of your work. Well, that it can be. But again, on the other side of it, if you have an audience that likes what you do and you can market by print-on-demand books or limited market, and you're pleased with that, there are some people that will write something in a pamphlet maybe or maybe a small book or something and maybe only sell 750 copies, but they see that as a success. They got to the market they were trying to reach. Mm -hmm. They helped a lot of people and they felt good about writing. I tell them, that's excellent. That's Mm -hmm. fine. It's fine. You don't have to have a New York Times bestseller to feel good about yourself as a writer. Right. Very good. Well, we like to leave a challenge with all of our listeners at the end of every episode. What challenge would you offer? I want to give you a couple of things. First of all, I share a Bible verse here that's always been great for me. 2 Timothy 1.7, For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. And I tell that to people there. Don't be afraid to try something. Don't be afraid to try writing. 
you might really enjoy it, even if it turned out to just be a hobby and you just did it, that would be worthwhile. If it turned out to be something that got published, even if it was just in your hometown paper or a regional publication, but it touched some lives, that would be great. Don't be afraid of it. If you enjoy it, go for it. And if you can, enhance your skills as you go along, and you'll obviously enhance your audience at the same time. Very good. Don't be afraid to put something out there. That's a key, key challenge. Well, tell us about your latest book and what you have coming down the pipe, because I know you're always writing. So what's happening? My brand new book that has just come out this month is called Jesus in All Four Seasons. And it's a sequel to a book that I had come out at the end of 2013 called Jesus in the Nine to Five. And it's a new venue and format that I created called The Fact Fella. In other words, they are factual books that talk about New Testament teachings on things that will help advance you, goal setting, time management, financial management, and quality control in the work you do. But I've also inserted fictional vignettes, little short stories at the end of every single chapter in which I have Jesus Christ on earth in the 21st century actually running the business. He's running the carpentry business, the furniture business. And as we follow him and watch him, he teaches, he admonishes, he directs, he inspires, he is a role model. There's a lot of humor involved in it. But the thing the readers get out of it each time, they'll look and they'll say, hey, I see what you're doing. That's a parallel to this story in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And that's what I want them to see, because what I do is I show that what Jesus was teaching 2,000 years ago has not gone out of date. It's still applicable, and it could be put into a new setting today and still mean the same powerful thing. Mm-hmm. So I want to make a three-book series out of this. And the first one came out, and the people, I was about 30% fiction and 70% nonfiction. The people loved the fiction so much. They got so many good lessons out of it, like a parable, a metaphor, an anecdote that followed along with the fictional story that in the second book, I made half of it fiction and half of it nonfiction. And I called the new book, Jesus in All Four Seasons, Having Christ as Your Personal Life Coach. And it's the lessons that Jesus gives in the New Testament teaching, but also in showing him in action in my short stories, how he would live that out for us. So I think it's going to be a success. People enjoyed it very much the first one. It was exciting. Now I'm already working on book three, which we hope will come out in 2016. That's great. I'm looking forward to reading your latest book. I, of course, read the first one and did a blog post on that as a recommended reading. I enjoyed it and had a number of people that had picked up that book as a consequence of my review also comment that they enjoyed the read as well. So that was a lot of fun. But, Doc, we're out of time, but tell us how our listeners can find out about you or get a hold of you in some way if they want to follow up. The easiest way is to go to my website, which is dockhensley.com, D-O-C-H-E-N-S-L-E-Y, all is one word, dot com. And there I have my latest blogs every week about writing techniques. I have links for radio and television talk shows I've been on. There's a link to show about the Taylor University writing program. And I also have information about where my speaking engagements are. So that would be able to be the best way to keep in touch with me and follow along like that and know how to reach me if anybody wants to call me or write to me or send an email to anything like that. So DocHensley.com. And you're going to be at the Right to Publish Conference June 3rd to the 6th. be Wheaton at, on the Wheaton campus. Yeah, and if you have an opportunity to get out there, right. boy, I tell you, sitting into any of Doc's seminars or workshops is just phenomenal, the amount of information you're going to pick up. And you're going to probably leave with your side hurting as well because he's a great storyteller and has all kinds of uh, funny (laughs) examples to share. But Doc, unfortunately, we're out of time and I would love to be able to spend more time with you talking about this, but I thank you for coming on the Reinventure Me podcast. 
Always a pleasure to be with you, Larry. All right. Well, thanks again for being with us. That's all the time that we have for today's show, and I want to just thank you for being with us as well. And if you have any questions that you'd like to leave for Doc or any comments that you have, feel free to visit our website as well, reinventure.me slash 68. That's where you'll find the show notes. Look for that. Also, join us on Facebook at reinventure.me and our call our show line, 612-314-5447. So that's all for this episode of Reinventure Me. Glad you could be a part of it. We look forward to talking to you next week. And until then, so long. You've been listening to the Reinventure Me podcast with your hosts, Larry Gates and Armin Asadi.